Welcome to the All Out Coach Podcast, where we cross borders between industries, countries, sportsmanship, and scientific thinking to reveal timeless values that anticipate and drive our legacy as we create leaders and learners across the worlds of business and healthcare. I'm your host, Tim Mikelashvili. Four years ago, uh, during a turning point in my life, uh, when I was working at a startup company, I somehow found myself in both one of the most difficult and most exciting moments of my career at the same time, leading a culture and values initiative for the medical division of my organization, yet finding that I had no opportunities to develop personally and professionally. And so in search of some inspiration, throughout the adrenaline-filled roller coaster focused on the product launch, I signed up for an MIT Leading Organizations and Change course, taught by Melissa Norcross, my guest today. And her passion for not only leadership and business, but teaching was exactly what I was searching at the time. And it played an instrumental role in accelerating my own journey towards leadership and learning. Melissa Norcross is an accomplished senior executive and consultant with more than 30 years of success on three continents across the financial, technology, and management consulting sectors. Throughout her career, she has held leadership positions at organizations including USAA, Collaborative Gain, and McKinsey and Company as well. As a former chief strategy officer and a veteran operations and strategic consultant for firms including McKinsey and Company, her work spans across different industries. She has led operations and helped organizations improve their performance, their, their engagement, their sustainability, cut costs. Companies like USAA, as an executive director of strategy and planning, where she led the talent and culture strategy at USAA of a greater than $600 million division with a staff of over 2,200 employees. She helped Fortune 100 companies across pharma, tech, and financial companies to build and architect their portfolios, identify high potential products as well. And she continues to teach and share her expertise with her chief executive, C-level peers in the Collaborative Gain Network, where she counsels top executives and helps them improve their operational performance. She continues to research and teach on team performance, organizational change, and humility. Melissa holds BS in engineering from MIT, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and a PhD in values-driven leadership from Benedictine University's Center for Values-Driven Leadership. And today, I'm very excited and honored to have Melissa tell us about the ultimate reasons and outcomes of inspiring and measuring team performance and how teams collaborate and compete as well. Melissa, what an honor to have you on the All Out Coach Show. Thank you for being here, for accepting my invitation. I really look forward to our conversation. I do as well. And I'm thrilled to be a part of this journey. I think one of the things that Tim knows about me is that I am super passionate about not only 
continually improving myself, but making sure I'm constantly reaching out to others around me so that we collectively get better together, whether I'm working with you or working next to you in a parallel organization. So I'm thrilled to be here. Yes. Uh, I know that you have also a, a your own consulting firm called Optimus. Yep. Right. I work with two different consulting firms, Optimus, uh -huh. um, on the tech side of things on CyberSide and Ad Luchum Group. Um, both of them I am pleased to have helped found, and um, they are both committed to organizational performance and improving what we're doing as leaders and um, as teams. You know, thinking back to that course that I signed up for and I, um, the Leading Organizations in Change, uh, I remember that I didn't want the course to end. I was sad when it concluded. And I wanted to create that bridge uh, with a lot of the other executives who had taken that course. Uh, and so I, when and I think about that, that course, I also think of it as a team, you know, a learning team. So I'd like to begin by asking you, oh, what makes those most innovative and memorable teams stand out to you today as you look back at your career? Yeah, I think I have the same experience that probably everybody else has. At some point in our lives, in our career, we're part of something really special, something extraordinary, a team. And it's it's always some kind of team experience where you both individually and collectively performed in an extraordinary way. You did more than you thought possible and you came together in a way that was surprising. And it almost felt like it. the team itself acts as a force multiplier. When I think about these kinds of teams, I think miracle on ice. Navy SEALs teams, um, sports teams that were individually, you do the math and it looks as if they might be okay. But when you see them together in action, when you are a part of that, you all of a sudden realize there's so much more here than I anticipated. And they're, they have a few things that are special about them. And one of my teams personally that I have is... Um, uh, I was always a part of a rowing team and there's a, a term they call swing. It's that sense that the boat itself begins to move in a magical way that you create um, when you are in perfect harmony. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all been there in that one moment where you just feel in, in when you're rowing in a boat, you just feel light the work feels easy. The progress feels more than you imagined. The plays run well. And this is true, you know, on the technical side as well. We, we have those moments when the, the innovations and the breakthroughs just happen in such a regular way. And we feel like we're we can get ahead of schedule. We can perform more um, and deliver more than we thought possible. Um, and I think the secret sauce to those are you have brought together groups of highly capable individuals, but you've done it in a way 
that they're focused on a superordinate goal first and foremost. It's about how the team is doing, what the game score is, not what your individual performance is. Um, and so everyone prioritizes that superordinate goal. But I think they also express a kind of humility. And that's what we see in there. And it's kind of at three levels. And I don't mean humility in the way that some people think about it, which is making less of yourself. It's about being self-aware and knowing your own capabilities, but also the limits of them. Um, Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway would say, know your circle of competence well. And these people who are humil humble um, and express that humility really truly understand where are they competent? Where might they be individually extraordinary? But where are the limits of that? And they're careful not to play outside of that. And they understand those limits. So they know themselves, their strengths and their weaknesses, but they also possess this fierce resolve. They are all in, you know, the old joke about the chicken and the pig, you know, the chicken is participating in breakfast, but the pig is all in. Um, and they, these people are all in, they have that fierce resolve to deliver. And lastly, they're willing to really look at their own performance with a kind of honesty. They admit the mistakes mm -hmm. that they make, they learn from those, and they're able to see them quickly so that they can incorporate them into their next level of performance. You know, if you think mm -hmm. about a golfer who is able to reinvent themselves, a um, scientist who's able to quickly say, ah, you know, I, I was going down this path in a wrong way, an engineer who needs to discard a component of a design and move mm -hmm. forward quickly to be able to separate yourself from that disappointment as you see that failure really makes a difference in your ability to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, as we talk about uh, some of the specifics of uh, you know how teams compete and collaborate, I thought we'd start with conflict first. You know, an intriguing kind of uh, topic to begin with: conflict resolution. As we go from how agreeable or disagreeable individuals are to then the dynamics that we build, the operations, the tools we create, uh, right, and then the metrics as well, and and the outcomes. So in that kind of um, uh, format, I want to ask you what really makes some of those most innovative teams from a dyna team dynamics perspective? Is it that they're most agreeable? Is it that they're disagreeable with each other or that they're just simply most talented? Yeah. I, in some ways, it's none of the above, right? Uh -huh. For me, <laughs> those best teams are the most committed to getting better. And they're that because that's their superordinate goal, the the conflict or the fact when they rub against one another is really in service of a greater good of improving performance, of moving things forward. And they are willing to create this condition of what Amy Edmondson would call psychological safety. Mm -hmm. They make it safe to highlight mistakes. And she first sort of discovered this 
and focused on this when she was working with teams that were medical teams um, in hospitals and scientific teams where there's a certain hierarchy, right? There's a, the star player or the doctor or the chief engineer. And, um, and instead, they issued the normal hierarchy and instead came to it as individuals and each valued the other perspective, the other's perspective. And they were able to both create friction mm-hmm. um, by offering different opinions, but there was a collective value on their different opinions. And so when the nurse spoke up and said, doctor, I disagree with that. I, this is what I observe. He could respect her point of view and see it from that point of view. And so it's less about agreement and disagreement Mm -hmm. and more about diversity of perspective and having the chutzpah really to value someone else's perspective and try and understand what's behind it when it disagrees with yours. And so there has to be that disagreement on, on content but there has to be an agreement about how we show up together to pull that data in and a value we place on each and every person's opinion and capability and expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction you make between the actual uh, outcome or, or the process to of, of the disagreement to to the value of it, how, how we perceive and and how we how we respect each other's opinions. Yeah, and absolutely. So from an operational standpoint, looking at conflict, for example, right, or or dynamics, diversity, and inclusion, how do we create the intersections between departments or norms of communication to make sure that we have that psychological safety? And I think this first and most important way is this overarching goal. And if I go back to like a Navy SEAL team or a sports team, it's really easy to see. But and and that is that they have a common goal, a common enemy, a common competitor. And that is the most important thing. Um, and what we're trying to do is make sure um, that that is the focus. And rather than the individual thinking about how do I measure my own performance, what you're thinking about is that overarching goal. And that's true of departments. And so when I think about this, um, what I'm here, I'm going to show this, this thing is the fact that when we're all aligned um, and at an individual level, when we're focused on the organizational goal and we're all connected, we're all on the same team. And so it matters then less about competing with a department or another place. And instead, how you see through your personal position, your team, your department or group, through to the organization's objective and keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing is that we, we have, have to, to 
really focus on coming at it with curiosity instead of competition and innovation instead of selection. So the best ideas are not the ones that come from the finance department or the the engineering department or the testing department or the QA department. They're the solutions and innovations that we create by coming together and bringing all of those points of view and capabilities together to create something even better. And the difference I've seen between stars and organizations that simply do well, but not extraordinary, is that understanding of how to come together to innovate and keep prioritizing what they're doing together over competing with one another. Great, uh, I think, points about curiosity, not competition, and um, I'm sure you've you've played a, a strong, in a, a, an important role in creating that type of environment in the teams that you led and you were part of. Speaking about the team dynamics uh, a little bit more, and and how you manage individuals, you mentioned organizations and individuals. In, individuals have have different types of backgrounds and universes that they bring to a team, and then mo- motivations as well as personalities. Uh, you know, if when you have an ambitious, for example, and highly accomplished team player who's a new hire, for ex- and in, in the prime of his or her career, who's asking for that ball, you know, and ownership of a project or mentorship, uh, while providing candid feedback as well and new solutions, new ideas, despite lack of resources or any mechanisms for professional development, how, how do you inspire such an employee in continuing to contribute with quality and? And continue to stay engaged. It's somewhat of a yeah. challenge, right? Any, you know, what are some it, of your suggestions? It is, especially when you have, you know, he's or she is a member of a, a wider team as well. And I view it very much as if, you know, I'm, I, I go back to sort of Moneyball and I think about what the capabilities that each of those team players brings. And I want to value that, take advantage of that, and also make sure that the first thing I do is maintain that psychological safety for my team. And the first thing I want to do is make sure that there is one and only one set of rules that I apply to everyone. Um, That doesn't mean everybody plays the same position, has the same amount of playing time, but, you know, scores the same number of goals, leads in the same way. But I want to make sure that there's a sense of fairness that is maintained across the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. Once I've got that, then I want to think about how I toggle between maximizing individual performance and maximizing team performance Mm -hmm. Um, and what capabilities that individual needs. You know, when I think about bringing in a new person, I often think back to myself as I was starting my career and what I needed. And there were so many things that I wasn't, incompetent. I knew certain things, but there were so many things I didn't know. And so one of the things I try and do is truly sit down with each of these individuals and have honest discussions about what they're good at, what they're capable of, but also what gaps they need to fill in. And I try and start that with where they want to go and what they want to be long-term. Because if you're just looking to 
excel in one role, um, or maybe by delivering a certain breakthrough or uh, a certain functional area. That's one thing. But if you're looking to be a general manager, you need a full set of skills and the ability to understand how things work at a much different way. You need mentors who have been around the system a lot longer. Um, and so I start to think about how do I round out the full portfolio of capabilities that they need? So I assign them hard tasks, but I try and assign them to those challenging tasks and those responsibilities in parallel with other people who have a different perspective on that, who can coach them through the things they don't know yet so that you end up with two things at the end. You end up not only with that individual having delivered on this, but you end up with a set, a team, not just that individual, but other people who now have additional skills that they didn't have when this project or initiative started. And that's how I think about it. Um, sometimes it can be easy to fall into this trap that, you know, you're getting stars and you want to sort of cater to the stars and make special rules for them. Yeah. And um, that can be where your team starts to break down because mm -hmm. you start to rob the star of the ability to have others around them who mm -hmm. improve their capabilities. You break down the culture of psychological safety that you have. You also are then dependent on a single point of failure. And that's never good either. You're, But more importantly than that, the first thing I think of is, am I doing this person a long-term disservice by how I'm assigning them? Or am I structuring the work so that longer term, they will become the people I want to work for and who do extraordinary things? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I created a continuum uh, trying to visualize this, uh, this dilemma uh, of aspiration to ability to responsibility. Because my hypothesis is that uh, there, when there is a difference uh, between and, and that difference is significant enough between abilities and responsibilities. That's when you have, uh, you know, lower quality. You know, a decrease in quality of engagement and performance. And um, you know, and I think uh, you know you, those individual conversations, those honest conversations that you you just talked about, uh, are a, a great start uh, where to to really discovering how you can match them as well as possible to express the full potential of each individual uh, and maximize individual performance in order to do the same for the team. Um, and, you know, I heard also Adam Grant talk about this interesting point of optimal distinctiveness is what he calls uh -huh. it, where, where he, he believes that every, every employee needs to feel like they're distinct enough that they, that they have that unique personality that they contribute to a team that they also belong to uh, at, the, at the same time as the organizational's uh, goal is for them to contribute to a team. To this, but, you know, so where is that balance between being that, you know, individual, being that unique individual and, and, uh, and a contributor to a team? Is 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 not is is often challenging, particularly in, when there's lack of resources. I think, right, uh, to develop 
people professionally. And did you find yourself creating resources when, uh, you know, even when they were were scarce, for example, and more, let's say, startup, smaller organizations? Do you find that it's the resources or the time is the reason maybe for a challenge for developing individuals? So I think too often we look at a problem and we see the constraints and not the possibilities. And what happens is, you know, people can look at something and say, well, there's only one project, either this person leads it or I lead it. And it's a lose lose. And, you know, either I get the project and the organization loses this person or the, you know, or their, and their contributions or vice versa. Um, And I think that's a false dichotomy. And I think it presupposes that we as leaders can't innovate, that we as teams won't innovate. And instead I try and look for what's the solution what's the innovative solution in which we it's a yes. And we all get what we need. Um, We have these individuals who are amazing and yet there's time for others to contribute and there's things we get out of it. I think Mm -hmm. um, if, if I think back to, you know, playing hockey with somebody like Wayne Gretzky, I mean, there is this sense that, well, I lose because I don't maybe score as many goals or whatever. But if you unpack that, what you realize is that you get the opportunity to grow in unique ways. And Gretzky, just like many of your best team team leaders and individual contributors, will find ways to coach and mentor others through it. So what happens is by the time you get to the end of that project, everybody has gotten a chance to lead. Mm-hmm. Everyone has gotten a chance to develop fundamentally new skills. And the if we think about budget constraints, you know, there was it's usually not the money. It's usually not the number of projects. It's usually, you know, and sometimes we'll say, well, there's not enough time. Um, but in actual fact, there's plenty of time there's the if you take the perspective that it's possible to do multiple things at the same time Mm -hmm. i can lead this in such a way that i have certain expectations that multiple people will do simultaneously you know that that we will develop new skills that the, each person, so I try and manage it at both levels. What am I looking for for the growth opportunity on this initiative project um, uh, against this objective for each individual so that they can continue on their growth path? And what am I looking for collectively so that everybody has this great experience? And you should be able to set up sort of this continuous cycle of learning where by the time you finish with a project, Every single person has had the ability to do something that grows them as Mm -hmm. well as the collective performance. And if you're not doing that, I would argue you need to rethink your role as a leader because that's what good mentors, good coaches, good leaders do. They're constantly looking for that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how does onboarding and training predict long-term engagement? You know, um, I think in some ways, onboarding is like a first impression. It's like your first chance at shaping some things. And what you're able to do with onboarding is set a ground, a level, um, a, a level playing field and set some expectations, right? When you walk into that class, um, or that, team or that environment, um, you are the new person on the block. And I think the way you need to set that, the most important thing is in onboarding is not, frankly, it's not to train people in how we do things, what we do, what we, you know, give them skills. It's about teaching them and onboarding them into your culture so that what you're doing is demonstrating what acceptable behavior is, that we support one another, that we create a safe environment, that we strive for excellence, that we work together and collaborate to do those things, and that we learn together and you create that tone of constant learning and building for one another, then you start the content onboarding. And that would be the only thing. If you don't do that up front, you pay for it later, right? If mm-hmm. you allow, and I've, you know, I've worked with them too, you know, if you allow the the rock star scientist to walk into the team and um set believe and act in a way that is not collaborative, that doesn't demonstrate his uh, presence or her presence as a peer, as a fellow player, that um, he instead is like that first young doctor who walks in the room and says, you know, I'm the doctor, I'll be in charge and shuts every other piece person down. Um, If you let that happen, you have not only broken your team, but you have set that person up for failure. If instead you focus on that culture, then there's content next. It's hard to undo that first level setting if you get it wrong. Um, If you forget to if you don't cover as well the content of the company and what they're focused on and the scientific depth of this breakthrough or that breakthrough that you can fix easily mm-hmm. the other is a little harder to fix yeah so we spoke about conflict uh, as well as team dynamics now i want to switch gears a little bit to talk more about operations and i know you've worked in so many diverse environments yeah uh, you've helped a major Polish bank institution, dramatic profit and growth. Uh, at While you're at McKinsey and Company, you designed HR restructuring strategy there. Um, you've uh, worked in at, at USAA where you de- developed different uh, K- KPIs, dashboards, and uh, accelerated goal achievement as well. So what were some of those techniques in the different environments that you used? Can you share, maybe give us a glimpse of some of them? Yeah. I mean, Um, each situation is very different. Um, and it is unique, but some of the themes and some of the checklists that I go down mentally are mm -hmm. the same. Okay. The first thing I look to do is unpack 
How are we making decisions? Are they smart? Are they data-based? Are we using data in order to make sure we're making the best decisions possible? I was working years ago at a pharmaceutical company, and the biggest thing we unpacked is that it was really tough to tell which scientific projects to sort of put our money on. And that was... uh, a decision-making process that wasn't yet mature. And so we put a lot of effort into maximizing that. When I was at a software company, the data and analytics we were using to understand profitability of product lines and other things wasn't as strong and as well communicated and easy to digest as it should have been. So Mm -hmm. those are sort of two examples of where you need to think about, are you getting the right data to the right people to make smart decisions? And that's usually what's, it's usually the data connecting to the decisions that's the problem. It's not that people want to make bad decisions. Nobody ever wants to do that. You make the best decision with what you have in front of you. And so often the challenge is making sure they get the right things in front of them. Now, the second thing I look at is, sort of being laser focused on doing what matters most. Less is more. Mm -hmm. If I try and do 12 things at the same time, chances are I'm going to do 11 and a half of them really badly. If instead I focus on one or two things or no more than a handful, and my rule of thumb is if it's more than I can remember on my hand and count down, it's too many. because you're switching costs take over, you're you're not able to focus. And that's true at organizational levels as well. So I would, the thing I love about Agile is it flips the script. Instead of trying to do 12 things at once, you do one or two things at a time. And then when those are done, you do the next one or two things. And that's sort of my second principle. My third one is that um, I want to put in place clear success metrics with early warning signals for when they're going off track. So if profitability and employee engagement or customer satisfaction is my, let's say um, profitability and customer satisfaction are my lagging indicators. Those are what I'm trying to maximize. Mm -hmm. I want some leading indicators in place to understand when things could be starting to go off track, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the market starting to slow down or, uh, you know, small things is my, are my employees dissatisfied? What's going on there? Because those are usually early indicators that something's not quite right. So I try and get the KPIs and the OKRs in place. Again, trying to stick really hard to my rule that it should fit on a hand. You know, I shouldn't have to take mm-hmm. my shoes off to count um, <laughs> how many things I'm measuring. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, um, transparency and rag- radical honesty about what matters most. And mm-hmm. it's not, um, you know, and I think we can often get wrapped around the axle trying to make too many things count. Um, But the simplicity for me of sports and sports analogies is that you always know who won or lost the game and you know why. Um, And even in sports, you know, while you measure the score, you also look at sportsmanship and how they showed up. And those two things 
are the same metrics I use for every business I'm looking at. What does success look like? What does winning in the market look like? And how do I make sure I'm doing it as a good sport with character, with integrity? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we all have that moral compass that tells us what's it like to be extraordinary in those dimensions. And so doing both of those at the same time is the other thing that I try and make sure everyone understands how they will be measured individually. And I go back to sort of that, those overlapping circles individually at the team level, at the department level, and at the organizational level, we should know what winning looks like. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, a, lot, a, lot, a few points that you that you brought up that I want to just address. Also, uh, you know, the data uh, database decision making. I think nowadays we're blessed with uh, how much data we have. Right? <laughs> we and might we, be we're, cursed we're, by how much data. <laughs> blessed and cursed also at the same time, right? Yeah, and uh, where our reality, I think, is more exposed than ever before to our decisions, and so it's just how how we use that that data, right? And uh, and the second point that you mentioned about focus, being very focused, is so difficult to do these days. And I had a previous guest on All Out Coach. He has an engineering background as well, by the way. And he talked about some thermodynamics kind of uh, theories. Um, and, and he made a distinction of being disruptive, but not being disorderly. Which right. sometimes startup companies often confuse, right? And they, instead of creating energy, they create entropy is how he phrased it. And I, I love like, that. Yeah. And I like that second point that you brought up, you know, and, and it's, which is, it seems to be a key to your success, right? In, in, in your career. Uh, and just to reference the previous guest whom I, I probably should identify, his name is Dan Reardon. Uh-huh. He's also an entrepreneur, you know, helped various different startups. One follow-up question I want to ask that I was curious about was uh, your your uh, your success in identifying high potential products and pipeline as you were architecting the portfolios of very in various you know pharma and tech companies as well. Yeah. Uh, it, what do you do? You attribute that to. Uh, to your operations and KPIs or your analysis or what, what are, or which one of these, let's say were most helpful in identifying what product a company needs to invest in or most or first? You know, I think they're all important, but oh, the way yeah. okay. I would, the way I think about it is have to be really transparent about what success looks like. And you got to, understand the market super well and what when i look at for those success metrics i want to define them carefully enough especially when i'm evaluating an individual project to understand that potential because if i don't understand what my customers want where my market's going and i don't have data around that mm-hmm. everything looks good what is it the old adage If you don't know where you're going, every road looks good. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do know where you're going, some of the roads might look good, but look really hard at the quality of that road as well. And what each individual project has the potential to succeed for. You know, I I wouldn't want to presuppose, you know, any path at the same time. You know, I, I think that the place... 
organizations I've seen fall down more often than not into making a bad decision is, and, you know, there's been lots of research done on this and Kahneman is great on this, but we often think we know and look for data that confirms that we get that confirmation bias going instead of looking at the data and asking ourselves that honest, transparent question, where is this and will it meet the needs of what's in the market Mm -hmm. and date and being open to the fact that data, new data may emerge next week Mm -hmm. that I didn't know before that could change the decision. And that can be really hard to look at with an openness of mind. Yeah, I see. So, yeah, it seems to me you uh, you truly apply both the sportsmanship principles and that scientific thinking, yeah. the scientific method in, in in your techniques, in your approach, which I think I, I share with you uh, wholeheartedly, by the way. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate and um, uh, and also our passion for for teaching is something we you, you and I, I think have in common. For which I'm very grateful. Uh, again, I want to ask you, Melissa, also about uh, the role of performance metrics, since you've already touched on them. How did those KPIs in particular impact team collaboration or interdepartmental rivalry? Yeah, you know, KPIs are interesting things. They have often unintended consequences. And I'll use an analogy. Um, and it's my favorite my favorite thing about the sport of hockey is that when you gather stats, you get a point for the goal. If you make it as an individual, but you also get a point for the assist. And I think that fundamentally shapes how people show up on the ice. And I think the same is true for organizations Um, that when unlike baseball, basketball, other sports, Mm -hmm. when that goal counts, even if you don't do it, you have the, you know what the right thing to do is, you know, working together, collaborating as a team is the most impactful way to play the game. Mm -hmm. And it's the most way, the most impactful way to show up. Um, But having KPIs that don't fly in the face of that and that instead reinforce that matters. So the thing that I often see in terms of unintended consequences is with is with KPIs. It's that you think your KPIs are setting you up for yeah. the behaviors you want to encourage, mm-hmm. but you always want to ask, you know, okay, what's the unintended consequence of this? Because there is no perfect way of keeping score, right? There is no perfect way. And so you want to, when I I set up, you know, the KPIs to encourage the behaviors I want, then I try and take a step back and say, what are the unintended consequences of these KPIs? Worst case, what would happen if they did everything exactly the way I'm intending it to, to do? Um, what would happen? And could that be a bad thing? And in most cases, it is. So the way I think about it, um, and John Van Minen talks a little bit about this, who's one of the, who started out as an ethnographer and 
um, in the days when management science was more scientific or trying to be, you know, and he would say it's art and science. And I apply that same principle with KPIs and OKRs is that I want a strong enough culture that says what you do matters and here's how I'm going to measure that. But half of the way I'm measuring you is on how you do it and how you show up so that that acts as the check for that and balance for the OKRs to to make sure it's understood that I expect you to collaborate. I expect you to do these other things. And so that moral compass can offset an OKR being taken too far to the extreme. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a perfect solution, but that's the only one that I've found that helps offset the fact that it can be hard to set these OKRs perfectly the first time. Sure. You know, it's it's funny you just you say that and you actually utilize the, the words that uh, really resonate and that I've also actually uh, shared with with my colleagues and my peers uh, in, in this new medical productivity index that I've been speaking mm-hmm. and writing a lot about for my function in the last, few, right. you know, over the last four years where I value performance and behaviors or engagement as 50% each in this medical right. index, which is the only formula that I, you know, it's the only formula in which you are able to reward both uh, sport, sportsmanship and competition as well, where you can eliminate people who are, uh, who don't believe in the meaning of that contest or the KPI, yet they believe in the nature of the role, what they're doing, but they don't feel like they're uh, evaluated uh, appropriately or there or you know sometimes you have i think cases where uh you are told that this is the competition particularly in my function which is not a directly revenue generating medical function we're there mm-hmm. to educate and to right uh, physicians and share information right uh, uh and and that's why metrics for us has been somewhat of a nebulous kind of concept yet i believe you needed some kind of estimate that of the relationship between activities and outcomes. And, and so uh, often what happens, I think, is that you're told that that's your goal, that you're told to kind of run a 100 meter dash, but you're not told where the finish line is. And I think that leaves a lot to misinterpretation, which is why I th- a lot of the medical teams in pharma struggle with communicating their value, which I'm trying to solve. And so I was so glad that you, uh, to, to hear that, and I, you know, fr- from you about the the role the role of behaviors as well as 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 performance. And I want to ask you to just to define OKRs for those who may not <laughs> objectives and key results. So objectives and key results. So they're it, different from KPIs, or so the KP the KPIs are key performance indicators, right, and right. so the objectives and key results. Think about them as they're sort of the description that connects the strategy through objectives, key results, and then you measure them with the key performance indicators. Mm -hmm. So all it is, is that sort of structured way of Mm -hmm. having the whole thing focus on on the long-term strategic objectives. The one thing I want to add too, when, you know, you're talking about the, the what, um, Mm -hmm. and this gets back to some of the research that Amy Edmondson has done around 
sort of hot, wicked hard problems and high performing teams in things like medical, scientific and engineering spaces. And what um, she recognized is that um, team learning behaviors and individual learning behaviors, those are hard to measure in the short term, but ultimately it's what drives performance in the long term. And so those, how you behave Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, those are a way of measuring for that long-term and providing perspective around that when you don't have specific measures. Um, Mm -hmm. Because we know building connections inside and outside your own network, having a, um, a humble approach to taking on new information, understanding your own limitations. Those are all necessary components of a learning behavior. And I'm going to show, I'm going to share one thing here. Um, You know, as I think about it is that you want to be, you want to have a culture that is psychologically safe. Sure so that you can start to innovate. You want to have that humility where you work together as a team, but here are the things that you really need to make sure you have in order to set up your ability to learn and grow as a team. You want to make sure you're encouraging and architecting diverse networks for everyone, um, shared values, engendering flexibility and adaptability, making sure there's solid judgment and decision-making, and then organizational learning. These are all capabilities that you need in order to deliver extraordinary performance. But as you can see, these are things that are really tough to measure in a quantifiable way. And the only thing you can often measure in an organization is the results that happen because of this in your KPIs. Uh, and so do you, how do you help visualize those metrics in those, in those scenarios where they are so abstract? Do you, do you feel like they need to be quantified in some form of index or similar to, let's say, frequent flyer miles that kind of that, that are an imperfect way to describe your loyalty to a, uh, an airline, yet they kind of they inspire you to fly more often, right? And they, earn that free flight. They uh, do. And um you know, it, it's one of those things that I, I think it's more art um, than science in this uh-huh. case, because each person to try and maximize all of them at the same time and understand in specific ways exactly how like how good or bad my all of those things are, it can be really tough. And so mm-hmm. the way I have tended to lean into it. I mean, would I love for there to be a, a measure and a formula? Yes. As an engineer, if we could do everything by formula, yeah. including yes. every relationship I have, my <laughs> kids, my husband, my mom, that would be awesome. But I, I think that's not realistic. And so the way I thought about it is I try really hard to have um, quarterly at least discussions with each of my team members about how they're doing on those dimensions. What are we doing? And then with my team, 
What are we doing around these dimensions? What do we need to lean more into? What's working? What's not? Mm -hmm. How is that playing out in our results? And I try and make sure we have those conversations Mm -hmm. and think about that in terms of the growth I want them to be able to seize. Um, And it's a little more qualitative than quantitative. But if you come up with a quantitative measure, I am all in and I will roll it out. Okay, well, I'll have to share uh, this m- this index with you, absolutely, because uh, you know w- one of the messages that I've been sharing with uh, our medical uh, affairs leaders in pharma is that if we are able to somehow quantify pain through visual analog scores uh, and validate them and use them in clinical trials, or if we are able to somehow uh, express music through notes, through sheet sheet music, in order to recreate those successes and those masterpieces uh, in a predictable manner, then probably we need to, I believe that we medical need to come up with some way that combines both leading and lagging measures. But, you know, you, your point about, I think, I think your approach, your individual approach there is the folk to focus on the leading measures as you check in with your teams in order to be able to maximize the efforts i think right and the intent is what i take away from your yeah approach right because that's ultimately what's yeah. going to drive those results later absolutely right? absolutely mm-hmm. and that's that's really um you know and i love your example of the sheet music when you know, we figured out how to get music down at yeah. the same time that sheet music I've had fabulous performances of the same piece of music and that there's an element of art to it that it can be difficult to quantify. And so mm-hmm. um, I tend to embrace my the, the limitations of each approach and try and offset it with something else because, you know, how I feel hearing that piece of music fundamentally different in Mm -hmm. different ways of performing it. And so things that might work for one individual in one team might not work for another. They might not be as moving as effective. I, I, you know, there's that humanity that both makes us extraordinary as individuals and as teams and as organizations Mm -hmm. and makes us complex and hard to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we talked about a lot of different, I think, uh, uh, approaches and, uh, you know, elements of, of teams of not just uh, building and belonging to teams, uh, as uh, was the focus in one of my previous episodes, but in exploring how they collaborate and why we need to measure uh, and, and inspire, right, collaboration and competition. Uh, I, I want to get to the outcomes a little bit. And I, you know, I, I uh, what I've found is that some of the leading business management cases of some of the most successful companies, even ones that don't have any hierarchy, like in W.L. Gore and Associates, for example, with Bill Gore, uh, or Paul Polman, who came into Unilever, or James Ree, who came into Ashley Stewart, they transformed their organizations while uh, changing the norms of communication, but also they focused, they featured metrics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill Gore had uh, only a CEO and no hierarchy and every single employee was asked to rank rank 20 or 30 of their colleagues. 
uh, and they were matched with a new hire that they were incentivized to make to ensure their success as as not just a mentor but as a sponsor for example right and yeah that company hasn't shown a, an annual loss over in over six decades for example right you know when, when you lead with the values with the initial talent strategy that you've led what have been some of the outcomes um yeah um directly most um outcomes and and this is where you got to match it to the culture right i love your examples because the business that they're in and the the culture they're able to create um are intertwined and so it depends on the business so i've where i've seen great outcomes it's when you focus on what absolutely matters most and the examples you just provided really do. You know, we don't need the hierarchy because of what, how we're doing things and what business we're in. Um, in the cases that I've been in, um, you know, again, very few goals, very high standards that focus on excellence okay. and the fact that it's we expect at the organizational level, at the team level, and at the individual level, you to show up and do your very best. The other thing that I've been able to do that changes, that has made a performance change is bringing in data around those few things that matter most of all and making sure we we take action that people can observe, see, and replicate. So performance. Um, at one company, we basically took them from almost going out of business to um, setting the standard for profitability in the whole industry um, within the space of about three years. And that's really tough to do. But if you're laser focused on that single problem, it becomes very easy. Because you can say, okay, here's the thing that's not working. Let's figure out what the drivers of that are and begin to implement some changes that will move that forward. You keep score. You look at that. And then you shift what you're focused on. One organization, um, we were turning around the financial organization that we didn't have data. We, we had a lot of challenges. So we put together a, this is what we're doing by calendar in each of the sprints, every sprint this year, we work together on doing that. And what we found is the, the outcomes really mattered because they were owned by everyone and everyone could understand them. There was transparency, get behind them. Mm -hmm. um, but transparency, consistency, focus, and data. If you get those four things and then you balance it with the sort of what matters, but also how you show up also yeah. matters. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, it's hard to not get better. Yeah. Well, uh, thinking about two different extremes of successes and failures, what tends to happen to, in terms of outcomes to you know team performance and quality and culture, when teams fail or when they extreme they're extremely successful? Um, 
Extreme failure and extreme success are the two places where it's really hardest to learn. (laughs) I got to be honest, because in extreme failure, you're crushed, right? It feels like there's nothing good you can take away. And usually, you know, there's firings, there's, you know, and it, and everybody has this natural human tendency to want to distance themselves from that. The same is true for successes. Success or as, you know, a rising tide hides all kinds of sins. As Charlie Munger mm-hmm. would say, when like the tide that. goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. But <laughs> while the tide's in, you don't know that. Um, and so it can mask some things. The learning zone for me that I have found for most teams is really in between those two things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only with great discipline that at extreme success or failure that you can take those best lessons away Mm -hmm. and understand what works, what doesn't, what was an anomaly and what wasn't. Yeah. You know, we had a next generation product at that startup company, as I think I've told you this before, uh, at a time when I took your course, I registered for your course uh-huh. and we were failing despite having the best next generation product. But as a company, we were failing. Yet I had identified that gap for learning. And that's probably why, based on your explanation and also my own feelings and emotions, why I found your course just so transformational for me. I mean, you had a very variety of formats with which people learned. And you put us to, in different teams also, diverse teams with a lot of hands-on pro, uh, exercises, simulation exercises to conclude the final capstone project. And also you gave us, you shared with us a lot of references, a lot of a wealth of reference, a library of references, which I, which I have to this day, by the way, Melissa. So, uh, so, you know, I think that's a good, great note to bring our conversation to the end and to hopefully spark more questions from those who listen uh, to contact you as well, connect with you, uh, Melissa. I would like to ask you, what is one final lesson that you'd like to share with those who are going to listen to All Out Coach, uh, where my motto is stretch yourself, lift others? For me, the thing that I I would say it's two things. Um, you know, as a recovering engineer, I will say that, you know, everything is both art and science. We cannot forget that organizations are systems, but they're systems of people. So we need both the science and the quantifiable things, but we also need the the complexity and the ability to navigate that because they're systems of people. And If we're going to make that be a strength, we need to figure out how to handle both simultaneously and hold that dichotomy in as leaders. Um, The second thing I would say is for me, um, I I love uh, Colin's work around um, level five leaders and believe that he really hit on something extraordinary when he unpacked this notion of humility and excellence and the fact that we have to simultaneously pursue both, that we have to, without the humility, we don't learn, we don't understand the 
our circle of competence um, well, enough to perform well, and without the excellence, we don't have that drive to continue to push things forward. And so uh, those are my sort of two dichotomies that I try and navigate most of my leadership with. Yeah, humility and excellence. Thank you very much, Melissa, for your time, for a lot of your valuable lessons. I know I'll be sharing some of my sports analogies with the batting average and slugging and integrating a lot of business management principles into medical, into pharma as well. So I know our conversation will continue and I hope yours will do as well. Those who listen, please connect with Melissa. She's an inspirational leader uh, who's played a tremendous role in my life and my career. Uh, whom I'm grateful to. So thank you very much, Melissa, for being a guest on All Our Coach.